Hi beautiful people, I hope that you are doing well. Welcome back to Inside My Podcast where we talk about music, literature, cinema, photography as well as other arts. I'm joined today by Lena Marie Donut, a professional violist who plays with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. You can learn more about her on her Instagram page at The Liberated Musician. Enjoy the show. So, hi, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, sure, thank you. <laughs> So I checked your um, Instagram and you talked about your musician's origin story came from the opera when your father worked there. How did this experience shape you? Well, um, I just went along with my father to his, uh, to his operas, um, I guess, like almost every week. I was very fascinated by the orchestra world, especially the, the pit. Um, in the last two and a half years, as I've also mostly worked in operas before, I was um, very much into symphony orchestra, but um, there was a part of me that was very much um, fascinated by, um, I don't know, like all those things you find backstage in operas, all those costumes, all those stuff which is standing around on stage. Everything is very, very fantastic and there is a lot of um, I don't know, like fantasy around everything. And um, the orchestra where my father worked is an especially nice orchestra. Um, the people there are very, very, very nice. And um, now that I know more than one orchestra in Berlin, I can say that they are very special indeed. And um, they made me feel at home in a way. Uh, when I was still a kid and later on when I started playing with them every once in a while um, the feeling continued to be at home and I'm really sure that back then that was the moment when I realized I just really want to be part of this I love being in the audience but I also knew instantly that I wanted to be like on the other side in the pit or on stage that's awesome. So your father was also a musician. What did he play? Uh, my father was a violinist. He was a concertmaster there. Uh, my mom also studied violin, but she's teaching now for a really long time already. My brother is a violinist. My stepsister is a violinist. My grandparents are organ players, so there is a lot of music in my family. That's awesome. So it's really a family thing, right? Yeah, I mean, there are a few people who don't play instruments, but it's really just a few. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Um, yeah, me, I'm the only musician in my family, so it's a different dynamic for sure. Um, I was wondering, did they share any advice regarding, you know, being a professional musician in an orchestra? Well, um... <laughs> My dad tried to give me one, for sure, very important advice, but I was way too young to listen. I remember when I was about eight years old, maybe, started when I was six, um, he was practicing with me and he was playing an exercise, which was like about one page long. And he wanted me, like, I could barely even just read the notes, but he wanted me to immediately, like, 
read the bar after the one I'm playing or even like the second bar after the one I'm in already. So he wanted me to look ahead because that's what you do in an orchestra, right? Um, but I was eight years old and I had only been playing the violin for two years and I really couldn't do it. And it frustrated me so much and I just started crying and ran out of the room. Um, so I think it wasn't very good advice, but it came at the wrong time. And um, if I had to choose the one thing my parents did best, like um, concerning my career, is that they never pushed me in any direction. I mean, they showed me, that's probably one thing, they showed me the, like the smallest percentage of discipline that you need in order to become a musician. I think I really practiced every day, starting at the age of six, maybe just 10 minutes a day, but I did it every day, like brushing your teeth. And it was very normal. Everyone was practicing, so I was practicing too. And they didn't ask me, do you want to practice or not? Uh, I just did it. And um, otherwise, they never told me what to do. Like in, in any case, it was always my decision. And I guess that a lot of people who come from musician families, they often lose interest in music because they are pushed on stage and they are pushed into competitions and to uh, famous teachers who are hard on them. And my parents never did that. They just let me do my thing. And I was always um, interested enough in music and in maintaining a certain level that um, I just made every decision by myself. Mm. What would you say was your biggest challenge as a musician and why? The biggest challenge? Yeah. Uh, mm, well, I guess it's the thing that finally brought me to the beginning of my coaching training. Um, you probably already know that I had a huge problem with my first my right and then both my hands on stage. Um, for years in very different intervals, um, my right hand was getting numb on stage in concert. I couldn't really move my fingers anymore the way you need to move them. Um, and at some point it even spread to my left hand as well, which is very inconvenient. And it led to the point when I had to stop a concert in the middle of a movement. I was playing a Beethoven quintet and I was like a, a quintet with two violas and there was a part coming up in the third movement which had um, a start of a solo, a viola solo. And we were approaching that part and I had to play the solo, so like lead into the next part. And I knew I, I couldn't do it. My hands weren't working anymore. And um, then I just had to stop. And I had to tell my colleagues on stage that I can't go on because my hands are numb. And then I had to turn to the audience and tell them I can't go on playing, which, as you can imagine, is like the worst nightmare anyone can, um, can have. And well, then I needed to leave the stage because I really couldn't move my fingers anymore probably and my colleagues decided to continue the concert without me with another piece um, and the worst part is <laughs> that um, 
the room where we played the concert was in a very nice castle, which also had the rooms where we were staying. And my room was directly above the concert hall. So while the other ones were finishing the concert, I was lying in my bed above the concert hall, listening to them finishing the concert. And I thought I could just die, drown myself in the river, which was nearby. It was really horrible. And that was the moment when I thought, okay, something really needs to change. I can't go on with that much pressure in my head because I was already sure that the problem is not a physical one. I had been to the hospital uh, several times. I had been checked in every possible scenario and um, I knew it was something um, psychosomatic, something emotional, um, an emotion showing itself through my body. And um, yeah, that's when I started to think that I really need to take better care of myself. And um, well, now that I'm kind of over this, I'm grateful for this moment. But in the very moment, it was so horrible. <laughs> I never felt worse than that. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so is it one of the reasons that led you to CQM? Uh, yeah, exactly. Someone recommended the, the method to me, someone who experienced the same problem with those uh, numb pants. Um, but it was totally coincidental. And after having tried so many different things, which I all liked, but they just didn't help me, um, this finally helped me. And this was then my, uh, well, then the idea came to me that I could just start by learning this and probably starting to help people through this technique as well. Um, I'm really sure that I want to learn more things <laughs> in the next years that could benefit other people and benefit that I could benefit from as well. Um, but there's a start now and I choose it because I had such a big success um, that I can't compare to any other thing that I've tried. So that's why I'm so convinced of it. Mm. Could you explain to people who don't know what CQM is, what it is? Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to try. Um, first, let me say that I can not give like a specific scientific explanation here because it's um, largely based on one single idea that isn't yet proven. And everyone out there who's listening just needs to decide themselves if they want to believe it's true or not. And the thesis is that thoughts can influence matter. So that's something that's quite common by now, but there is no scientific proof. I mean, some people try to prove it and then they don't get results or they get a, get a result and other people are then saying your result is wrong. So um, <laughs> I personally believe that... Uh, thoughts have a great power and um, I could name some experiments which also underline this but I don't think it really matters because some people are going to say it's bullshit and some are going to say yeah of course it makes total sense to me. Um, so the idea is that um, because we are all made of atoms we have a, an electromagnetic field um, which is like somewhere around us and it stores it stores experiences it stores memories and um, it can store them in a neutral way 
then just leave them. It can store them in a positive way, then just don't touch them, <laughs> leave them there, uh, but also in a negative way. And that's the thing we are looking at with uh, the Chinese quantum method. So essentially, um, we use a muscle test, which comes from kinesiolo kinesiology. Um, we detect um, energy mix-ups in another person's field. So if you are my coachee, I'm going to try to lock into your field and check if you have resistances on certain concepts. For example, if you had trouble playing on stage, I would check if you have an energy mix-up on the subject of success. Um, if you have one there, then this doesn't help us that much yet because success is like such a huge subject and we would need to look at it from various angles and we need to look at it from your perspective. We need to see who influenced you um, and we need to be very creative because most of the time our troubles are um, influenced by things we don't know they are influenced by. And that's, that's the thing which makes CQM special that you can find those influences which aren't really close by. You wouldn't get to them if you were just thinking, oh, what might be the reason that I have this trouble? And um, cleaning up in your energy field um, makes your energy flow freely again. And then there is nothing standing in the way between you and, for example, success anymore. Um, sounds a little bit like magic. Um, it is a lot of work, though, because you need to find the right concepts to check. You need to find the right concepts to neutralize. Um, you need to be open. You need to be creative. And um, nevertheless, it's a very fun process, which can tell you a lot about yourself. And um, yeah, for me, the results have always been um, astounding. So I have a lot of fun. Uh, using it for myself and using it for other people as well. Yeah. So how was your first time performing as a soloist in an orchestra? Uh, scary. <laughs> um, the first time I played as a solo viola was the Tannhäuser Opera. And um, there are three acts which are, um, in my case, um, divided with two breaks. So there's one hour, then a break, one hour, one more break, and one more hour. And um, the first act was really horrible. <laughs> of course, I had like I had made up my mind about how it might feel. And I thought, okay, if I'm sitting in this chair, I might be able to see the concert master better. I might be able to hear better. I will have better contact with the conductor. And I will just have like a very strong idea of the structure of the piece and then I was sitting there and I was so lost I really didn't have like I didn't get any structure idea I was just trying to like swim into the right direction um so the first act was very overwhelming and when I went into the, into the break I really wasn't sure if I could go on um but then in the second act there were some parts which are very important for the viola section they are not really hard but they are rhythmically challenging and the solo viola really needs to lead the section otherwise it's just gonna totally fall apart and um, this I had practiced for myself and I had visualized um, how I'm gonna do that and it worked out really well and um, then in the third act I was 
uh, super relaxed and I just enjoyed the music and it was like a musical present <laughs> for me. Um, yeah, and since I could witness my own um, development through this three, four hour opera, I realized, okay, you can start one piece and feel like you can't do it. And then in the middle of it, you can feel suddenly very self-empowered and in the end you can be very relaxed. So you don't even need a lot of time. You are totally allowed to screw up in the beginning if it's totally new. Um, the only thing is that you should try to get better as fast as possible. And if it's even possible during one single piece, then, well, that's good, right? Yeah. So how was it to work with the Salmon Rattle? Um, it's been a long time ago, but um, of course I recall it. Um, it was actually a very special occasion because um, it was in my it was my university orchestra, and we had already played our concert. And the day after, Simon Rattle came to rehearse with us, um, just for fun, <laughs> to put it like this. And um, I remember when he entered the room and he sat down the first thing he said was um hello good morning um i'm gonna ask impossible things from you all day now and um probably some people might be annoyed by this kind of phrase but i really liked it um and then there was like another incident which is just an anecdote but uh, he wanted the viola to play a certain section we were playing the concerto for orchestra from Bartok. And um, he gave the entrance, but somehow the other violas were confused or whatever. So I was the only one actually entering and playing. And um, since I was so motivated, I had like a really big tone and there was a lot of expression in it. Of course, I stopped after like three seconds when I realized I was alone. But um, then he pointed at me and was like, yeah, that's how it's supposed to sound. Um, <laughs> so this didn't happen very often to me, but um, that was my... Um, my very impressive uh, memory with Simon Rettel. Um He has a capacity to give an orchestra a structure within you can be totally free. So what he did with us was that he grounded the orchestra in a way that every soloist and every group who was playing a specific important voice they could be completely free and everyone else knew what's what was happening around them and there was no conf confusion but still so much freedom and so much flexibility and the music became so alive um, because of that and um, I've met some other few conductors which were that great as well but um, he's definitely one of the best conductors I was ever able to work with. So you mentioned that you won three orchestra auditions after taking 15 of them. How did you interpret um, these rejections? Oh, um, well, very differently, of course. Um, in some cases, when I was rejected, I actually went to the third round and I was uh, one of the finalists my very, very first audition for a real job. Um, I was sick the days before and I had like three or four very long 
Tristan rehearsals in my Oprah Academy. Even I think in the morning of the audition, I still had a Tristan rehearsal and I was super sick. And then I went anyways and I played and I got to the last round and I was super happy with the result. Um, I didn't even know if I could play the first round because I was so weak and um, I did really well in each of the rounds. And so I was completely happy with that. Um, then there were other occasions, for example, when I played in the opera house where I was doing my academy, um, I really liked the orchestra and I would have loved to work there. And when I played for a fixed position and I also got to the finals, but I didn't get the place, of course, I was depressed because I just really wanted to, to stay there. Um, then there were other times, like, for example, um, I won this job in Hamburg about a year ago. Um, but afterwards, I did two more auditions just like for fun and to try if I could win another job as well. And those two auditions went really bad. I don't know why, but um, I think I didn't even get to the second round or something. And although I had already won my job and I was happy with it, I felt so frustrated and so depressed. So <laughs> to sum up, there is no system to how I felt. Sometimes um, it felt reasonable to be very happy or to be depressed, but sometimes I was also like depressed when there was no real reason. So <laughs> there is no system behind it, I, I'm afraid. For sure. Um, how do you deal with the pressure of, you know, being successful and being an orchestra um, musician? Well, to be honest, I haven't thought about that for a very very long time I started studying when I was 19 and until I was about 25 I'm 26 um, I think I cut out this whole topic of reflecting what's going on inside me out of my life I just didn't ask the question so I wouldn't need to listen to the answers and um what was happening with my hands was my personal warning sign for, hey, there's something going on one, going on with you which isn't great. And um, I don't know, I think for a very long time, I had one very straightforward goal to learn as much and to be as productive every day as I can. So like every single second I was free, I was practicing. Um, and there was simply no time for me to reflect on how I felt about all this stuff. And um, at the latest, when I started my first job, like the full-time orchestra job I had won, um, I realized that I cannot just like go along with what people expect from me anymore. So especially in this orchestra, I felt like what they are asking from me is really not what I want to give. What What's important for them is really not important for me. And what's super essential for me is totally unimportant for them. So that really wasn't a match. But it made me realize that there is actually a very strong voice inside of me telling me what I really need and what I can't compromise on. But before... I have not given that voice any room for a very long time. Um, and now that I give it room, I 
realize in how many ways I've not listened to it and in how many ways I should have listened. Um, but I've really committed to the journey to be more attentive to what's going on inside of me. And um, it's a lot of work and I'm still in the beginning, um, but I'm sure I'm going to stick to it because I know now what's, uh, what the benefit is. You played as a soloist in an orchestra and in a chamber music orchestra. Which one do you prefer and why? Uh, well, I mean, during summer festivals, I loved to play chamber orchestra without conductor. So if I could choose my best memory, it would be this sitting in a small orchestra, not depending on a conductor, being super attentive, listening to everyone, really playing together. Um, that's the ideal. <laughs> But um, from like the, the professional orchestras I've played in, I think I'm very much in love with opera right now. Um, I love that every evening there is something else happening. There are so many different conductors, so many different singers. Um, and... There is always a surprise somewhere and you need to react and be very much awake. And that makes concentration a lot easier than if you just recall the same automatism every night. So if I could choose, I guess I would love to play in an opera, opera orchestra full time again. Yeah. Um, you talked about giving yourself the permission to fail. How did you turn around the narrative after years of suppressing your emotions? Uh, very good question. <laughs> I think I just ran against a wall hard enough to realize that the system I was using didn't work anymore. Um, I don't, I don't actually know what the answer is. I think I just used what little bravery was left inside me and I made small experiments. So I was sitting in the orchestra and I felt like right now it wouldn't ruin the whole performance if I made a small mistake. So I let go a little bit and I tried to, to really feel how how much space I have now, how much more free I feel. And um, there is uh, obviously a benefit in playing in an ensemble where you feel like you won't be killed if you make one single mistake, um, which was the case for me. But I think I really just let down my guard percentage by percentage. And... Um, I tried to, yeah, write a new narrative, maybe. I mean, I'm still in the process of writing it, obviously. Um, although I call myself the liberated musician on Instagram, it's really much more a goal that I try to get to than something I already am. But again, uh, power of thoughts. <laughs> I think it might be better um, to call myself this way already than saying the one who would really like to try to be the liberated musician. <laughs> um, yeah, I've just tried to be very attentive to 
those, let's call them negative examples. Examples of people who seem to be super successful, but when you look behind their stage or like behind the curtain, you see so much trouble, you see so many deep holes and so much darkness. And um, I simply felt at some point that I can't keep thinking the way I did before. And I cannot really explain how exactly that felt, but it was so, it was so clear that I just could not not listen to it. That's so interesting. Um, talking about this, what advice would you give to someone who suffers from self-sabotage? Well, I think first of all, you should not listen to the people who tell you that you can't talk about it. I've heard that a lot of times. Better don't tell anyone who might be able to or who might have power over you in a certain situation. Like never talk to your colleagues in an orchestra if you are an academist, because if you win a job there, they already know something about you which they shouldn't know and then they might vote against you after a trial here um and i never listened to that because i was very good at finding the people i can trust and i just talked to them and not the people i was feeling insecure with and um another thing maybe is that you should try to find out however with cqm or another method of course there are a lot of ways you should try to find out why exactly do i do the things that i do why exactly do i think the way i do and when i say find out exactly i mean like super specific to the point um there are so many things that have happened in our biography like super small moments which have huge impacts on us if you have felt like you've disappointed your parents at the age of five because you couldn't do what they wanted you to do this might be the reason why you feel like you are not worthy at the age of 25 these are extremely small moments compared to a whole life which matters so much and you really need to open your eyes and think about it not just once but maybe a hundred times until you've found those little pins in your personal biography which might be the reason why you feel like you need to perform at a certain level why you think that you always need to sound like a freshly pressed cd if you've ever recorded a CD, like professionally with an orchestra, you know how it works. Like they rarely play a piece even once through. They just do like those little pieces which they put together into the perfect version. Nothing there is real. Nothing there is authentic. Um, but when we listen to the, the violin concerto, the clarinet concerto, the viola concerto, we think that this is how it sounded on the first try. And... Um, I think if you spend enough time just giving those thoughts room in your system, for example, that no CD out there is actually real. Nothing you hear on a CD is the first try. So you don't need to compare your first try to the CD, which would make you super depressed if you did, <laughs> obviously. Um, 
if you just give these thoughts room and you let them really sink in, which won't happen in a week or in a month or probably even not in half a year, um, there will be a significant change. Um, but it needs time and it really needs dedication. You can't just tell yourself, okay, for one week, I'm going to take care of myself and I'm going to try to not criticize myself too much and I'm going to try to not listen to the people who tell me I'm not talented. It's not going to have an effect. You need to do it for several months until you see the very first result, <laughs> which might seem uh, like very hard to do. But if you're going to stick to it, then for sure you're going to have results and they are going to be very important for your life because we are all still so young. We have like 40 years of work ahead. And right now we think if we need a year to finish or even start a certain process that's going to be valuable for our whole professional life, then we think, oh my God, one year, that's so much. But compared to the 40 years in which you are going to be either miserable or enabled to take care of yourself physically, mentally, whatsoever. So I think it's worth the time and it's worth the dedication for sure. Yeah, it is. Exactly. Um, you also talked about value and self-esteem as a musician and how you realized that even by winning competitions and working with famous orchestras, it doesn't make our feeling of being not good enough go away. Could you tell us more about that? Um, yeah, so for me, for example, playing at the Berlin Philharmonic or in the Berlin Philharmonic had been one of those fantasy milestones in my head. Um, I had, of course, been listening to the orchestra for years, Probably I went there for the first time when I was like 13, 14. And of course I adored them. And um, I was sure I would never be able to play there. But of course still it was like kind of a dream in my head somewhere. And um, because I didn't think it would come true, I could put that label on it if I achieve that. I'm going to feel like a real musician, like a real artist, then I'm going to be fine. Um, well, and then I won my first academy job and um, my teacher, who was a member of the Berlin Phil, my teacher back then, um, he invited me once to play with them. And um, it was a week-long project with a very little tour at the end and it was one of the most impressive orchestra experiences I've had in my entire life. Um, and I remember that when I really knew I'm going to play there, I had to find someone to cover for me in another orchestra. But then there was this point when I knew, okay, I'm going to play there. Um, and there was this brief moment when I was jumping through my room because I was so happy about that. Um, But like 10 seconds after, I was already on my way to the Philharmonie to get the scores. And then I was practicing like crazy for two days. And then I did all the rehearsals and the tour. And afterwards, well, I at least I cannot recall that I was proud or that this feeling of I've made it, I've done something big, was part of my emotional system in any way. Um 
And when I realized that, I thought, okay, maybe that wasn't the thing that's gonna make me feel like I'm a real musician. Um, maybe it's gonna be winning another academy or winning a master place or winning a job or whatever. So I had like some more ideas what could make me feel the way I wanted to feel. And right now I can say that all these initial ideas I had, I've achieved all of them. And some days ago, I've even had that moment when I realized that what I'm doing right now is something that I could never have imagined I would be able to do. So I really had a very bad idea about my abilities when I started to study or even when I decided that I want to start studying. And um, so there was a lot of positive surprises for me. But I think because I started my whole career, my whole process of becoming a musician in this mindset of I can't do it, I'm never going to be good enough. I also never reached that point when a certain achievement that you can put on paper, black on white, um, this point never made a difference eventually. And I needed a lot of time in order to realize that. For a while I was just waiting, waiting and waiting for me to feel capable, for me to feel like a real professional musician. And it just didn't come and it made my life so hard um, and now also with the coaching training that I'm doing of course I'm getting deeper and deeper into the psychological background of the picture we have of ourselves and self-awareness and conscious stuff and unconscious stuff um, which builds into it and I understand a lot better why my idea <laughs> didn't work and what I can do instead. Um, in this area, I'm really very, very much in the beginning of working on the idea I have of myself. That's probably the slowest process of all the ones that I'm currently in, um, because I'm really starting from not only the ground, but maybe like the <laughs> the floor below the ground. Um, so there's going to be a lot of work for me still. But um, I'm trying to really hold, to really stop in those rare and short moments when I feel, hey, I've done something really good here. So, for example, if I've played a concert and I feel something like proud afterwards or something like happiness, um, then I really try to stop for a second and I try to feel into the feeling I try to give it room I try to expand it and I try to make like a marking in my memory so I can go back there when I feel like shit again <laughs> and I can go back to that memory and go back to that feeling of being a real musician of being capable and um, yeah I'm collecting those moments now and I'm trying to put them like in the front row of the shelf of my memories concerning music and not putting those where I felt like I'm a loser <laughs> in the front anymore. Mm. I also think because you dreamed of it for so many years, like you told me that you started at six years old, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I feel like because you waited for that dream, 
for so many years, it was kind of a shock in a way, even if it was a good one. Um, there is one pattern in my life, which I think is one of the reasons why I feel the way I feel. Um, I was in a school in Berlin, a high school, which was like, um, they had like a little bit of a um, music orientation there, but it really wasn't anything like an elite music school. There was an elite music school in Berlin, or there is. Um, I was even having lessons there because my first viola teacher was teaching at this other school, um, but I wasn't part of it. And I was also very happy with my school. I never wanted to switch, but I wasn't part of that school. And when I was 16, so like on the edge of still playing violin and switching to viola, I got into a scholarship um, and I was the only person in the whole program who was just coming from a normal state music school. The other ones were like young students from the University of Arts or the Hans Eisler School. And they were all better than me, which is totally fine because they spent so much more time on their instruments and they had amazing teachers and they were already doing competitions. So it was real, my feeling of not being as good as them, but I still got into the program. So I think I actually deserved my place, but I just felt like I'm the worst here. And then <laughs> I came to the Hans Eisler School, which was very surprising for everyone, including me. And again, I felt like I'm just like on the lowest edge of not belonging here anymore. People were the rising stars, like everyone practicing around me were winners of big competitions and they had already, already achieved such fantastic things in their life. And I was just like, I don't know, I was feeling like a little puppy, which is just like trying to find the way out or the way in or whatever and um, I really felt like I didn't belong like I did in that scholarship program before um, when I won my first academy I was like the reserve vi winner someone cancelled his position so I uh, got in through the waiting list so to say so I told myself I don't belong here um, then I applied for master my master program and I didn't get accepted at my own school, the Hans Eisler. Um, I did get into the University of Arts, which is also great. But again, I didn't feel like I actually earned it because my own school didn't take me. And um, that's a pattern which is like jumping through my whole life of getting something which is really great, but feeling like I don't deserve it. And um, I've been telling myself that story for a very long time until I realized it's actually just a story. And you can, I mean, <laughs> to put it a little bit black and, black and white, I believe that you can choose any story and tell it to yourself over and over and it's going to come true. And usually we pick the negative stories and that's how we narrate our lives. Um, but if we, like, if we are a little bit more attentive, we can choose at least a neutral story or even a positive one, which we tell ourselves about our own life and our abilities and our future. And it's going to have 
a different outcome for sure. Hmm. I was wondering something and if you don't want to talk about it, you know, just tell me. Um, but it feels like there's some self-sabotage in there, you know, because you've been saying like, I never felt good enough, like I didn't quite belong there. Um, could you tell us more about that again, if you want to? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that was going to be one of my one of my next topics also on Instagram. Um, the, the short answer to a question is just yes. <laughs> yeah, there is something of that in my story um i guess it's it's more than that it's like a recipe there's different ingredients and um you you need to look at every person's personal story to find out how exactly the recipe looks but i think for most of us there is at least one ingredient of imposter syndrome yes yeah I also feel like because we start at such a young age, well, I started older than you because I was 14, I wasn't six, but we start at such a young age and there is so much competition um, between students and there's also a very high standard um, in music school, in conservatories. Um, and there's also that thing where as musicians, we feel like our craft is ourselves which it is in a way so yeah how did you manage um all of that yeah of course i mean it's easy to say that if you go to an audition it's not about winning it's not about being better than the others the people in the auditorium won't judge you they just want to hear someone play a nice tune it's easy to say that but it's so hard to believe it which is why i think you should just forget about the whole crap and find a different reason why you go there so i think it's impossible to tell yourself that in a process where like a process like an audition where you start playing in round one with 30 other people and in round three or four there's one person left it's impossible to tell yourself a story which excludes the idea of competition and criticism and being left out and being judged so i think that's not useful i think it's way more useful to say i'm going there because i love music and if i can play one note and someone is listening to it and i can put my special voice inside that tone my special idea i can show something of who i am through a note and i don't even have just one note i have like some hundred thousand ones <laughs> in an audition um if you count them all together um then it's it can actually be a very nice thing to play there to just go and play to make music um And I think if you put it that way, you are not lying to yourself, but you are also not buying into a narrative which is going to sabotage you. So if you are a person who is who's leaning towards self-sabotage, I think you should not try to convince yourself of like the exact opposite story of what you are telling yourself usually, but you should find like 
a very much different story which comes from a different perspective um like to knock on another door to say um i think that makes a lot more sense than just trying to think the opposite way of how you thought before yeah it's about seeing all the different perspectives and colors of our system um you know i can only talk about my experience but when i entered my conservatory there was so much um competition that it really triggered me for a very long time and i could only think about that one thing and i kind of lost you know why i really started music but then when i started to you know grow up i also realized that we have this competition for a reason and i can look at it you know in in a different perspective and see that it actually prepares me for my job and seeing it like that that it's for a job it doesn't reflect my value as a human being no for, for sure not um i think it's just very is very easy to to get sucked into the gray area so if you realize that even like <laughs> Let, let's say you're sitting in an orchestra and you are the second clarinet and there is also a first one and a third one. And the first clarinet tells you how you play is great and the third tells you, oh my God, I really hate what you are doing. Then you need to go into the gray area in order to make both of them happy because with the white version, you are making the third clarinet unhappy and with the black version, you are making the first clarinet unhappy. So you need to mix it into something with ha which has no shape at all anymore. Um, this is why I think it's so important, even in, in a world where there are so few jobs only and you have to work so hard and fight so hard to even get one, you still need to be honest to yourself. And if you've been in the job for a while you need to be honest and say do I fit in here and if you don't you just need to go there's no point in staying on a position where you feel like you need to be in the gray area and where you feel like you're white or you're black is not accepted here uh, it really doesn't make sense because again there is like 40 years ahead of us working every day six hours eight hours it's just too much time in order to make those compromises and I myself have thought for such a long time that if I get any job at any point then I'm again gonna be the luckiest most self-empowered person on earth um, and then I realized that's maybe one of the wrongest stories I've told myself it's just really not true um, you're not going to be happy if you win any job at any point you need the right job <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> um, it's really way deeper than what we may think um, so the Verda is most of the time at least you know, to the public eye regarded as a very replaceable instrument could you tell us why it isn't um, well, I've actually already played as first violin, second violin and viola in orchestras. And so I think I can say what's the specific job of first violin, seconds, violins and violas. Um, 
a very good friend of mine who used to be uh, the principal violist of the Berlin Philharmonics, he once said that the violas are like the red wine because they give a special taste to the orchestra. And that might be true. We don't have the most uh, virtuous voice and we don't have the most important voice, but um, we do something which I would call essential. And um, if you can live with not being in the center of attention all the time, and if you like pulling the strings in the back <laughs> where it's a little bit darker, um, and if you enjoy colors and if you enjoy romantic music then the viola definitely is for you for sure and this uh, prejudice that violists simply can't play well that's definitely not accurate anymore it might have been in the past but the level on any instrument is so high nowadays so it's obvious that even violists can play their instrument nowadays <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> um so many people don't know, but there are various various soloist pieces composed by the greats, such as you know Mozart, Berlioz, and I wondered if you could record one. Which one would it be? Mm. Well, I've never seen myself as a soloist, so I don't have like my most favorite concerto or something, but. I love the sonata repertoire for viola. Um, I also love the ones which are transcribed from different instruments, like the Brahms sonatas for cl for clarinet. I think Brahms even transcribed them himself, right? So um, the voice, the the melodies make a lot of sense for viola as well. Um, I now recall that when I was very young, I had just switched to viola. I think it was. 16 I listened to the um, Rebecca Clark sonata and it's such a fantastic piece because it doesn't doesn't even sound like a real piece all the time it's more like an explosive improvisation or like exploded love for the viola <laughs> and um, Rebecca Clark is one of those people who have only written a few pieces which are famous but I think they are very very special she has a very special um a very special voice and um well if I could choose a sonata I would like to record then probably it would be hers um I remember that when I had just started playing the viola this was the piece I was working towards obviously I've played it several times now already but it's still one of the pieces I would always like to play again. So finally, if there is one advice that you could give to a young musician out there, what would it be? Mm. Um, I really don't want to give any advice, but since it's so such a general thing, probably I can still say it. I think it is very important to listen to your inner voice. And that's such a lame sentence. I know, I'm sorry, because it's like part of every uh, TV advertisement. Listen to your inner voice. It has become such a popular phase, phrase, which we are not even, we are not even able to to grab the essence anymore because it's everywhere. And we just like... Um, 
our attention is flying past it because it's everywhere. But um, there is a certain truth to it. There are so many influences in the world out there, not only for musicians, but for every person who's growing up in our world. And there are so many directions we are pulled into and so many things that push us in certain directions. And to have an idea about who you are without the pushing and the pulling is incredibly hard. And you need those moments of silence in order to maintain an idea of who you are. And you don't need to meditate an hour every day. It can be a short walk or it can be a cup of tea that you drink without listening to music or without watching Netflix. It can be something super small and it doesn't have to be there every day, but it should be there every once in a while because otherwise the idea of who you are is just going to be it's just going to be distorted by what's happening around you. And to find those moments to connect with who you are, that's very important in my eyes. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Linda Marie, for taking the time to talk with me <laughs> and uh, answer my questions. I hope that you had a great time. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> thanks for your questions and thanks for your time and attention. So this is the end of our little conversation. I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, if you want to learn more about me, you can go and check my Instagram page at The Musician Insight. And I hope to see you soon. Bye.